Thank you, Dennis and Becca. I don't want to take credit for their great talent, but we've been doing music videos every week, and when I found out these two were on, I was like, you could just do it live, right? You could do it live, and it took a little bit of convincing, but how's that going? All right, thank you. Man, that was great. So we're in a series called Songs in the Key of Love, and we've been walking through just different songs, love songs, and there's so many great love songs. That is one of my favorite, and we're kind of applying them. We're looking through the lens of Scripture and kind of figuring out what we can learn about love in our lives. That, to me, is one of the greatest love songs ever written. It's got to be in the top couple, right? Now, my ranking, just because I know you really want to know, uh, Garth Brooks is one for that. I would put Adele at two, Michael Buble at three, and Bob Dylan, I know his original, it's like 476. Like however many people have recorded it, that's where his version is. And if you don't, if you think I'm being mean, just listen to it on the way home, all right? Just listen to it and compare it to what you just heard. All of this, every last bit of it, is because of the incredible love that Jesus has for each one of us. It's not about just enjoying fantastic music and incredibly talented musicians together, although I do really appreciate that. I mean, how many of you know when your worship director isn't here, your music's supposed to go down hill, right? It's not supposed to be like that. Man, that's awesome. We love you, Anth. We miss you, but man, we're in good hands either way. It's not about connecting with friends and family, although I really do sincerely hope you have that here, that there are people you look forward to coming and to seeing every week. 
It's not about dropping your kids off in a safe environment so you can drink warm coffee and just have an hour where no one needs anything from you. Uh, But seriously, if you're doing that right now, drink it in. It is fantastic, and I hope you enjoy it. It is all about the love of Jesus. It's about the unbelievable lengths that God and his son were willing to go to make sure that we felt his love, that we knew that love, that we had a chance to let that love change us and change our eternal destinies. And there are a few things that are more widely loved and accepted by our culture than a good love story. I mean, that's why so many songs are written about love. There's so many books about love. There's so many movies. I mean, we live in a time and a place where chick flicks and rom-coms are accepted movie genres, right? You can just say that. Like, you want to go see a rom-com? You want to see a chick flick? That's what it is. How much do we love love stories? Nicholas Sparks' net worth is $40 million dollars. That's how much we love a good love story. So I've got to tell you at least part of mine, right? I've got to tell you some of that today. I want to tell you about my engagement story. Now, those of you who know me and who know my wife, Amy, know I married way up, right? I redefined marrying up. When I did that, I outkicked my coverage, whatever you want to put. So that meant when it was time to propose, I really had to nail it, right? Couldn't just be like, you know, on a Denny's, no offense if you got engaged in a Denny's, and be like, hey, you want to get married, right? There's somebody here that did. We can still be friends. You're like, darn it. I knew, I knew we should have gone to Applebee's. So I just knew it had to be, I had to do something big. And so what happened was her aunt and her uncle lived next to her parents. This is her senior year in college. And so I had had it set up that she was going to babysit her cousins. They're a good deal younger than her. Her aunt was like, hey, Amy, can you babysit this Friday night? Because then I knew Amy would keep the night free. Her mom said, hey, on the way to your aunt and uncle's, just stop over at our house. I got some stuff for you. So she came in her parents' house, and there were 11 yellow roses there. Yes, 11. She didn't count them. Yes, yellow, because that's her favorite. And like, I think, you know, they're the friendship roses, but I think we're more than friends. I feel like we are, you know, 16 years and three kids into marriage. So it's working out. So 11 yellow roses, each one has a memory tied to the rose, a different trip we took or some good memory of our three years that we had been dating together. So she looked at that and she's like, oh man, Amy's mom's like, yeah, they got delivered. There's something else for you in the back too. So she walked down the hall to her childhood bedroom. And when she opened the door, there was four of her best friends in there. Becca wants me to tell you she was one of those four friends. She really, it's important that that's entered into evidence. So it was Becca and three other friends that you guys don't know. And each of them had a present and had a card. And the card had some kind of, you know, explanation written in there. One person had a new dress for the evening. One person had the stuff to do her hair. One person had makeup. And I don't remember what the other one was. It's been a long time. So they did all that. And each one gave her the present one at a time. They got her all ready for this fancy night. They were their friends. And then they gave her the last card, which said, you know, go back out. Your carriage away or, you know, something like that. And she went out, and there's a stretch limo in her driveway. And the five girls then got in the limo. They took it down to Letchworth. And they knew, pull up to this path, let her out on this path. So she walked out on this path by the falls. I was there with the 12th rose. And this is pre-bachelor, just for the record. You can look it up. With the 12th rose, and that rose, the memory on there said, the night we got engaged and decided to spend the rest of our lives together. And I proposed. She said, yes, thankfully. And then we had dinner at the Glen Iris and then took the limo around town, you know, celebrating with our friends. That's part of my love story, right? That's part of my love story. But as much, as deep as my love is for Amy, and as much as I was committed to pulling out all the stops, especially that night, to show her that, As much as we love and enjoy on a level those stories of those couples that are married for 70 years and then die within hours or days of each other, presumably because they just couldn't face life without the other one, with all due respect to that, to your love story, to the other great ones, 
Our main point today is that God sending Jesus to earth was the greatest act of love the world has ever known. That's it. That is number one. You can come up with whatever list you want to. You can do as much research as you want to. That is the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And I was looking up, I thought, well, what, are, what do we consider? What is considered to be some of the greater acts of love? These came off the same list. 1936, King Edward VIII gave up his throne of England because British law wouldn't allow him to marry a commoner, right? Some of you remember this, right, Buzz? Um, and he was in love with an American, Wallace Simpson. So he stepped down as the king. Buzz is like, what did I do to deserve that? He stepped down as the king of the country to be with the woman that he loved. It's beautiful. He gave up, said, I'm not gonna be the king. I'd rather be with her. They were married in France six months later. The couple spent the rest of their lives together, primarily in Paris and the Bahamas, which isn't necessarily a terrible life to live. I enjoyed this one. In 1927, a Wisconsin architect named John W. Hams was watching his wife dispose of food scraps by wrapping them in a newspaper and tossing them in the trash, and he thought he could make her life easier. So he dreamed up a device that would grind the food into tiny pieces so it could be washed down the drain, and he patented the garbage disposal in 1935. Now, side note for John here, he could have just helped, right? He's like, man, that's hard. That's really, oh, man, that's tough. Wish she didn't have to do all that. And she's like, yeah, why don't, if we both did it, it would be better. He's like, no, nah, I got something. I'll see you in eight years. Give me eight years. I'm going to get this fixed for you. Anything but help. But with apologies to all the wonderful acts of love that we've seen on earth, or all the love stories that have been written or have been told, we've never seen anything like an all-powerful God sending his all-powerful son to earth in the form of a helpless baby to live and to die for an otherwise helpless world full of sinners. Sending his son knowing that he would be scorned and rejected by so many, knowing he would suffer in absolutely unbearable ways, and despite knowing all of that, sending him anyway. And it wasn't just an act of love by God the Father. It was an act of love, an act of obedience, an act of submission for Jesus to follow through with this plan. And you will never, ever find love like that anywhere else because there are no limits to the lengths that God is willing to go to show his love for you. Sometimes I think we soften this a little bit. We know how it all turns out. We know that Jesus didn't stay dead. I mean, God knew that Jesus wouldn't stay dead. Shoot, even Jesus knew that he wasn't going to stay dead. And sometimes we have this tendency to soften it to soften the pain that they felt. What God went through watching his son suffer that kind of agony. What Jesus endured physically, yes, but also emotionally. The pain that he had from the separation from his father as he took the sin of the entire world upon his shoulders. I think we see this pretty clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is really clearly saying, I don't want to do this. He's saying, God, anything else. Let's find another way. Or he's praying. He's saying, God, find another way. Make another way. It makes me wonder, did Jesus do that thing? You know how sometimes when we pray, we remind God of things that he said? We're like, God, you said, you know, if you confess your sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us the sins and cleanse us of fallen righteousness, so you have to forgive me, right? We think like we got him on the dotted line. Was Jesus like, God, you know, you said you could make a way where there is no way, so let's make a way where I don't have to go and suffer on the cross because I think it's really clear the anguish that he has, that this cause for Jesus that he didn't want to do it. And the only thing that could have motivated God and Jesus to endure this incredible pain is the greatest love the world has ever known. 
That's why John, in his gospel account, he sits down and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes the verses, the verse, one verse in particular that will become the best known verse in our Bible. And he starts out by trying to make God's motivation crystal clear. Now these are verses that are probably familiar to you, but we're gonna park here for a while and try and dig something new out of them. It says in John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, I love that it doesn't just say, now God loved the world, right? That would be good. That'd be a good motivation. That would be a fair motivation. But it wasn't just that. He so loved the world. He so loved you. He so loved me. And then who did he so love? He so loved the world, the entire world. God didn't just love those that would love him back. He didn't just love the people of Israel, which at this time was still kind of breaking news. That was a big deal to say that God loved the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. In the first seven words of this verse, we learn not only how great his love is, but also the motive for his actions and the object of that great love. They are powerful, powerful words, and as familiar as they may be, I hope that we never lose sight of the power of them. There's a reason that verse is so well known. It is the most powerful and succinct declaration of the gospel anywhere. So we know that he took this action. We know who it was intended for, but what did he do? It says he sent his one and only son. He didn't just feel love for the world. He didn't just have compassion on the world. He had love and compassion that motivated him to action, but not just any kind of action, a deeply sacrificial action. And that's so important because love inherently involves sacrifice. Love is gonna involve sacrifice, it does. If you have a healthy marriage, you know this, you get it. If you are raising kids or you raise kids, you get it. Loving someone well requires laying down one's self. A laying down of what you want, of what you desire, of putting your priorities and desires behind someone else's. A lot of us, especially guys, would be like, yeah, I'd die to protect my wife. Like, would you die to protect your wife or your kid? Yeah, absolutely, right? I'm not mocking that. I think you probably would. You're ready. But would you die to yourself for them? I know you jump in front of a bus, right? I get that. But would you put them first? today? Would you put them first tomorrow? Would you put them first ahead of you? Because that's a sacrificial love. And that's one you're going to have a lot more opportunity to do than jump in front of a bus or a bullet or whatever else you're picturing. Now, back to John 3, 16 and 17. It says, he gave his one and only son, this, this beautiful sacrificial action. And why was that the particular action that he chose to express his love? Because anyone who believes in his son would no longer face eternal death, but they could instead have eternal life. I mean, this is huge. We're talking about forever here. This isn't some temporary change of status. This is 10,000 years and forever more. God didn't just give up his son because of what this gift would do for us here on earth. Yes, yes, it would give us more peace, it would give us more love, it would give us more joy, but he gave up his son. They both went through the agonizing pain that they did because they knew that what we would gain was far beyond anything we could grasp or imagine. They paid the high price to show their love because they knew the return on investment would be even higher. 
And one more thing before we go. Don't sleep on John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's a powerhouse verse. Everyone leaves it off, but it's so important. It's so crucial to this picture because John makes it clear that Jesus coming to the earth is a good thing for all of us. I mean, make no mistake, without him, we are condemned. Without him, we were condemned. There's no other bridge, there's no other road, there's no other way. So the motive for God sending him, which we already know is great love, was to make a way to save each of us from the judgment and from the condemnation that we already faced. And that, John 3, 17, is why the gospel is good news. Coming out of the Christmas season, don't forget the words of the angel Gabriel at the birth of Jesus, that the birth was going to be good news for all people because Jesus came to the world to save it, not to condemn it. And that's equally true for all of us, every one of us. Whether we have taken steps to accept that love, to claim that gift, to align our lives with that love, regardless of any of that, that sacrifice was made for us on our behalf. Another favorite few verses that have been so formative for me in trying to understand at least as much as I can, God's love for me comes in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans 5, 6 through 8, where he says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did he do it? He did it at just the right time. And the right time was when we were still powerless, when we were still ungodly, before we had done anything that we could possibly start to think we had earned this love or we deserved this love. Then that is when God had to demonstrate his great love for us. While we were still sinners, that's what had to happen. Because another thing that we know about love is that love makes the first move. Now, Pastor Vern shared a very similar thought with you in the first week of this series. If you're paying attention, if you're following along, uh, from 1 John, he brought that up. And I've got to bring it back because it's just so crucial to this message. God made the first move. I don't deserve it. I will never earn it. And that needs to be a constant reminder to me that he also died for everyone else while they were still sinners. He died for the people that drive you crazy while they were still sinners. He died to the person that has been the most awful to you in your life while they were still sinners. And that knowledge, that understanding, it should keep us from trying to make the love of God an exclusive thing just for insiders. It's not. It never has been. It never will be. God's love, his sacrifice, the extent that he went to show us his love will always be for everyone who accepts it. It's the nature of God's love. That's just who he is. He pursues us. He chases after us. He draws us to himself. And he doesn't just do it once and if we don't respond, give up. No, he continues to draw, to pursue us. He continues to draw us to himself. Now, I'm a believer in provenient grace, right? Now, some that's a church term, and some of you are like, what is that? You lost me. You had me the whole time till then. Provenient grace is a grace that pursues you. It's like a magnet. You know, you take the magnet, right, and you get them lined up the right way, and you just see the one, like, it pulled right across. Like, this one just pulls it right in. That is provenient grace. And sometimes people push back, and they're like, well, that term, that specific term isn't in the Bible. 
But some of us, man, we know about that grace. Some of us, we felt that grace. We felt that magnet drawn us in and we were fighting, right? We were fighting. Remember you used to do the whirlpool and the circle pools? Probably you still do that. Uh, you do that and you'd, like, then you'd go around and you'd get it going and then you'd switch and go the other way, right? We were fighting. We're like, God, I'm not gonna go to that magnet. And he pulled us in, he drew us in. And in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, he expresses the words of God that convey this exact kind of love and grace, the kind of love that makes the first move in Jeremiah 31.3, where he said, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Man, some people here this morning, you need to hear that. He's loved you with an everlasting love and he's pursuing you with kindness. God's love for his people, it's an everlasting love. It reaches back into the past. It's anchored there in the past, and it reaches into the future. It's eternal and secure there. And how does he draw us in? He draws us in with unfailing kindness. Don't miss that. That's the heart of God on display for all of us right there. He doesn't force us. He doesn't compel us into relationship with him, but instead he draws us in like a magnet with his love and his compassion. That is the love of God. That's how it operates in our lives. And he did all that and he does all that, he goes to that extent to make us feel his love. And it's not just so that we can say, thank you very much. I will really enjoy eternity in heaven. I look forward to that. No, because the cycle doesn't stop with us. It can't stop with us. Paul, in his letter to Galatia, he says that if we fully accept and embrace this sacrifice, it will change us. The sacrifice was made on our behalf. Again, we can't earn it. But Paul says when we fully give our lives over to Jesus, it will change who we are. It will change how we live. And he says that in Galatians 2.20 when he says of his own life, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So Paul, Paul's gone, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's like, yeah, the guy I used to be, the guy prior, who I was prior to knowing and embracing the love of Jesus, that guy is gone. I mean, God even changes his name to make it that official. He's a new person. He's living a new life. And that new life is the life that we live through the power and grace of Jesus being alive and active inside of us. And guys, it is the ultimate game changer. Nothing else will change your life like this. Listen, I love the Bills, right? I love the Bills. I love our quarterback. I love our coach. I love Diggs. I love how much this team loves the city and this area, right? I love all that. But I just, I gotta break some bad news to you. Whenever the Bills eventually win the Super Bowl, please this year, I'm free. It would be good. This year would be good for me on my schedule. Whenever they do, it's not going to change your life. It's not. It'll be fun, right? It'll be fun. You can celebrate. You get the championship t-shirts. You get a magazine and put, frame it and put it on your wall. It will be a blast. It won't change your life. It won't. I promise you for a couple reasons. One, I also root for another long-suffering fan base who said we would give our right arm to win one title. We did. It was great. We won three more. Those were also great. Didn't change my life, right? Really fun. Not a life changer. I've seen some people lose weight right? I've seen people change. I've seen people stop smoking. I've seen people stop drinking. I've seen people get some counseling to help them get through some of the brokenness and pain of their past. But so far, 
In the 42 years of my life, I've only seen one thing that truly has the power to actually change who a person is, one thing that can make them a new person, one thing that can make them a new creation, and that is fully submitting their life to the power and presence of Jesus. That's it. That's it. It's not a self-help book. It's not trying harder. It's not your team winning a title. It's none of those things. I'm talking about people finding peace that they never even knew existed before. People discovering joy in places they wouldn't have thought joy existed. People finding a purpose in life that is bigger and better than themselves. People with painful past finding a way to let it go and move forward. I'm talking about broken people being made whole. This love of God can fundamentally change who we are and how we live. I have seen some of the most unloving people become some of the most loving people. And that's the point, right? That's the point. I told you earlier, the cycle doesn't stop with us because God doesn't just transform us with his love for us. It is so much bigger than that. God's love transforms us so that we can love others with that love. And that's how the cycle goes through. Ultimately, that is God's plan. That's his goal. God's love transforms us so that we can love others with that love. And then it transforms them so that they can love others with that love. And then it transforms them and it continues. That is how the love of God works. That's why he went to such extreme lengths to show us his great love in the first place because God so loved the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for that love. Oh, God, we, we know your love. God, we hear about your love. And sometimes, God, I think we just take it for granted. I think we make it commonplace. God, I think we become comfortable with it. But Lord, I pray that we would be revitalized by this reminder of how great your love is. God, I pray your love would change us and we wouldn't just hold on to that. We would use that to love others with that love. And God, for anyone here today, they're in this room or online that doesn't know that love for themselves, that doesn't know that great love, God, I pray that you would draw them in with your kindness, Lord, just like your word said, you'd draw them to yourself and you would not let them leave today without coming to know that love for themselves. God, that it would shape them and it would form them and it would become who they are and what they do. God, do that in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember when that song first came out, it was a little controversial, right? Some people got upset about the word reckless. And they're like, the nature of God is not reckless, right? That's not who God is. And I agree with you, but his love is, right? He scatters that love everywhere. He loves people who he should not love. He loves people who are never gonna love him back. He loves people who are on their second, third, fourth, fifth chance. And I'm so glad that he does. I'm so glad that that's what his love is for us. The takeaway today is that there is no limit to what God would do to show his love for you. No limit at all. So go today in that love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have a great week, and we will see you next weekend. 